Sailing through the storm. Acts 27, we're in today. A wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Storms will come. They will always come. But the Lord will see us through to the other side. That's what he told me as I was working on this. Sailing through the storm, emphasis on through. We all love and claim for our own the promise the Lord gives us through Jeremiah that the Lord knows the plans he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope in the future. But the part that catches us off guard in reality as life goes on is, and it's not because we're not warned by God's word, but because we don't want to hear it and because preachers don't fill churches by telling you about it, is that there's often storms, big storms on the way to our future of prosperity. And that prospering that the Lord is referring to isn't always the kind of prosperity that we might imagine. Dollars and the things they buy are, are what we usually think of when we think of prosperity, but the Lord measures wealth much differently. And in the end, his idea of wealth is what will make us happy. And uh, I'll take that hope in future any day, storms and all. The real blessings of health, family, and love, and peace of mind and truth, they can all be threatened and tossed by the storms. But when we get to the other side of the storms, those riches are beyond compare. They, they're so much more valuable and, and usually greater. I'm sorry if that doesn't square with your prosperity message, refrigerator magnet, Facebook mem theology, but that's our present reality as citizens living in the realm of this present darkness. But do not fear, for our Lord has overcome the darkness, and no matter how overwhelming that may seem, as we're in the storms, there's always light shining through to whisper to the storms in our hearts, peace be still. The storm around you is just temporary and can't touch your soul. It's, it's the, the storm in the heart that the Lord wants to take care of first and foremost. Jesus in Mark 4.39, when you think of storms, you usually think of this. He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. The calm in your soul is the one that matters. Well, how can I be calm when all you know what is breaking loose? Well, that's the beauty of our God. That's the gift of grace and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that he gives us that peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense, so we just have it so we know it's from God. Let your requests be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul would write this later to the Philippians, probably after he went through this storm. So you may feel totally out of control, but you're not supposed to be in control. That's the whole point of the Bible from start to finish, in case you didn't pick that up. That's what's happening here in Acts. A wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not heed, head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. We had no control whatsoever. We just went where the wind blew us. So, good news for Paul. He's finally getting out of the basement of the governor's house in Caesarea, where he's been in prison for two years. Bad news, he's about to sail into a hurricane. Good news, Paul survives the hurricane. Bad news, the ship doesn't. You ever feel like you've just jumped from the frying pan into the fire? Like, 
can I just go back to my basement? <laughs> or you might feel like you're just in survival no mode and have no, no control over where you're going. That's pretty much what this chapter is about. Again, it may look to the rest of the world and to Paul in his weak moments as well that his life is totally out of control and certainly out of his control. And Paul goes what was probably at times during that two years of captivity, mind-numbingly boring existence where every day is just like the day before and none of them are what he would have chosen. And he heads from that straight into weeks, a weeks-long storm of epic proportions on a ship that is totally out of control and in constant danger of being swamped and dashed to pieces. And so I wish I could be bored right now. But neither Paul nor anyone else on the ship even knows where they're going anymore. This is sheer terror, terror for the sailors and for the guards and the prisoners alike that are all on this ship. Acts says there's like 276 of them. It's a big boat. But once again, Paul, the mad ex-Pharisee turned Jesus freak, is the only one who seems to have a grip. Who knows where he's going, even if the day-to-day -day is totally out of control. I don't know where I'm headed today, but I know where I'm ultimately going. It's kind of his, it's what's getting him through this stuff. Because, uh, but it seems like even Paul's starting to get a little worried here. Because Luke, his partner, writes, who's writing this firsthand, so apparently Luke is there with him now. Some people thought maybe he pretended he was Paul's slave so he could go along. Which wouldn't have been unusual in that day. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, Luke writes of their little journey, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So how did they end up here in this hopeless situation? These apostles of Jesus Christ. Apostles of the one who calmed the storms and walked on the sea. No doubt this was all part of the enemy's plan to destroy them. Being subverted once again, as all the other plans have been, as a way to accomplish God's larger purpose of getting Paul to Rome, the Lord always takes the enemy's plans for evil and turns them into something that facilitates his plan, getting them to Rome with a, now with a story that's going to get the attention of everyone who's going to listen. Let me tell you about my trip here, boy. It was pretty wild. And why I'm here, by the way. story we're still reading today. This three-hour tour turned shipwreck begins many weeks earlier back in Caesarea. They even have a song. Sit right back in your hero tale, the tale of a faithful trip. No, that's a different story. So, <laughs> Paul's appearance before King Agrippa and the, the lovely Bernice finally gets ticket, Paul's ticket to Rome. It's where this all starts. Unfortunately, his ticket is not a direct flight and he ends up being transferred to the Titanic. A little bigger than the minnow. When it was decided that he would sail for Italy, Paul and the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, founder of Orange Julius at the mall, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. Probably not. We boarded a ship from someplace, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea and went someplace else, Macedonian from Macedonia. No. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So there's a couple people with Paul. Luke and his Aristarchus character. So it must be a brother from a church Paul started somewhere. But apparently, chargers are none. You know, in our story so far, they've been trying to figure out, what do we charge this guy with? We can't just turn him loose. The Jews will kill him. 
we can't ship them off to Caesar without having charges, what do we do with this guy? It's getting kind of embarrassing, but finally they've had it. Charges or not, Festus just wants to get rid of this guy. We've had enough of this Jesus freak. After two years of being Paul, Paul being held prisoner in Caesarea, the Romans trying to find some charges, they're suddenly seen to be in a hurry to get rid of him. They had to have been to send him off with some of their best troops. This Julius is like the elite, the head of the household guard, the people that watched the governor themselves. He may have even been bodyguard in Rome for Caesar at some point. It's kind of like the Secret Service. So he sends them and some of his troops with Paul and his group late in the year to get these guys to Rome, get rid of them. So it's speculated that perhaps Paul's blunt and well-attended presentation of the gospel message about Jesus Christ shook them to their core and convinced Festus and the council that this man with his story of personal encounters with the resurrected son of this Hebrew God was more than they could deal with or suppress. This man's either totally mad or he's speaking the truth that's life-changing and life-altering and world-altering. And either way, people are being persuaded and his, his ideas are a threat to Rome's iron grip on the people. They decide who is God. The Romans do. They decide who is free, who lives and dies, and they decide who is allowed to succeed in life. We can't deal with this. We're the ruling class, and we're going to stay that way. We can't have people running around thinking they can hear from or talk to God without going through our controlled priests or temples. We can't have notions of resurrected, resurrection undoing the ultimate power that Rome has, the power to kill detractors, to terminate their existence, to crucify the cross is a symbol of terror and death by which we control the masses. It can't be a symbol of hope and life. We've got to deal with this. Kingdom of heaven, what's that? You're either a Roman citizen, a subjugated foreigner, or a slave. Those are the three choices. You don't get to be a kingdom of heaven, have Jesus as your king. So this is the mindset of the empire builders of the day. And honestly, it's probably still the mindset of many godless governments or systems who find themselves in places of power and wealth once they learn they can rule without being held accountable to the people. But Paul isn't to be deterred. He knows it's foolish to sail off this time of year, but he doesn't have any say in it. He's just a prisoner. And he, lords, he knows the Lord's going to get him to Rome. He has that promise. You're going to testify for me in Rome. And he knows that his fate, his life, in this, in this life and the next, is in the hands of his Lord. He's going to Rome. Okay, I'm going to Rome. How should I pack? Oh, wait, I don't have anything. Fortunately, God puts him in the hands of a man of honor. Once again, a Roman centurion. Seems to be a lot of these in the scriptures that turn out to be noble people. This one's named Julius, and I find it telling that Luke names this centurion when just a couple chapters back, he didn't even bother to give a name to the high priest, which we find out from historians is Ishmael, but Luke didn't say that. But he names Julius, so apparently he made an impression on Luke, man of character. So Julius lets Paul go when they get to one of their ports of call. So they're working their way along the coast, getting ready to sail across the deep blue to, to Rome. Do you want to go see your friends? Go ahead. Let him get you whatever you need for the trip. He's been in prison for a couple of years. He probably has just a shirt on his back. So again, the soldier's honor outstrips the self-righteous piety of the religious elites. 
and the soldier would ultimately save Paul's life. Well, the religious only seek to take it. Because the hearts of religious in this story are far from God. So let's read some of the story. Acts 27. It's a really long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but it was a really long storm. They're about to sail into. Could actually make a really good movie, yeah. Aside from one really long chapter. When it was decided that he would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, whatever, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they could provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Things were getting a little difficult here. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia, and there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. I like to picture a big triune with all the oars sticking outside. It was a Greek ship and put us on board. And we made slow headway, verse 7, for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. I know I'm pronouncing all this stuff wrong, but I don't live there. We moved along the coast with difficulty. I bet they couldn't pronounce Absarchy, right? And <laughs> came to a place called Fairhaven, near the lake of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned him, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, listened to the advice of the pilot. I mean, why would we listen to this guy? Wouldn't we listen, wouldn't we listen to the people who do this all the time for a living? Makes sense. And to the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, we can't stay here anyways. This is a lousy harbor. The majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Where and Suzanne just went. There was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. That's a long sail from Judea. It's probably a different Phoenix. So Paul has warned them, I can see our voyage is going to be disastrous. So Paul ends up being a victim of other people's bad choices. God didn't lead Paul into this storm. Paul, in his godly wisdom and discernment, knew better. That probably isn't a good idea. But all oh, the experienced soldiers, or sailors, the professionals, they knew better. Let's listen to them, everybody's thinking. Look, we have a favorable wind. The wind's changed direction. It's looking good. It's just so easy, and it feels right. Famous last words that have led many to destruction. So let's see how this turns out. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. Sweet. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force... That's so sweet. Called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard, and they passed ropes into the ship itself to hold it together. That had been quite a chore. All right, you swim down here with that rope and come up the other side, and we'll grab it, and then you go back out of the... How do you do that? Anyway, sidetrack. 
because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Kind of a big deal. How are you going to work the sails without tackle? When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging on, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So surely this is it. All hope of surviving the storm is lost. Oh, ye of little faith. Nothing is too hard for God, right? But who are we to sit here in the warm drive or landlocked little town here judging these people? Surely no one has more faith than Luke and Paul, right? But when all you can see for days on end is darkness, you've got to start to wonder. And I find it telling that Luke and Paul went through the storm. A bad storm, a life-threatening, shipwrecking, all hope is lost, when will it ever end kind of storm. You would think of all the God-fearing people who have ever walked the earth, that if anyone could prevent a storm or avoid a storm or pray away a storm, that it would be Paul. But the Lord didn't stop the storm for Paul. Cease be still. We know he could have. We've seen him do it before. And he didn't warn him away from the storm. It wouldn't do any good. Paul didn't have any choice. He was a prisoner. And the Lord didn't take him around the storm. He went right through it. They sailed unknowingly with a favorable wind. Hey, this looks good. Let's go this way. Beckoning horizon right into the teeth of the storm. Sounds like a hurricane from the description. That lasted for what seems like an unnaturally long time. I mean, at some point it says it's happened going on for 14 days. So it would seem that maybe this storm has a little encouragement, a little help from uh, the prince of the power of the air, maybe. Find that description in Ephesians. You we made alive who were dead in trespasses, sins, in which you once walked according to the courses of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which, spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, there's certainly some air moving in this story. Most likely this verse is referring to the battles in the heavenlies where the spiritual battles take place in the air, the spiritual realm. But I think, don't think it's a stretch to say that this spiritual battle for the advancement of the gospel through Paul and his companions is being manifest big time in the literal air in this terrifying display of horrific weather. A lot of people think the enemy was trying to destroy Jesus with that storm on the Sea of Galilee long ago. Yes, it was late in the season to be attempting to run across the open sea, but this storm isn't normal. Can't blame global warming. That hasn't started yet. Doesn't seem to be fully natural. Every storm we have now is the worst storm ever, right? Well, this was a pretty nasty storm. So the devil's tried to sink, he tried to sink Jesus with an out-of-the-blue storm, and now he seems to be trying to sink Paul here. So why wouldn't he be trying that here? In this story, this corrupt and dying earth is, after all, his for now, save for the hearts of those who have been redeemed by Christ. And those who have been redeemed from the power of the prince of the air, as the verse says that we just read, we have nothing to fear. Really, all he can do is blow and bluster. Our hearts and our fates are safe in the hands of Jesus, who tells us, do not fear. 
I'm still in control. I could stop this storm at any moment. Or I could let it rage and use it to accomplish a larger purpose. And no one knows what that purpose is but me right now. Trust me. Back to the other famous storm. Lord, save us, we're perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you a little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was dead calm. Remember, Jesus wasn't worried at all about this storm. He was asleep. They had to wake him up. Lord, we're dying here. You're taking a nap? He was safe in his father's arms. He wasn't worried. The sea he created couldn't swallow him or hold him. It wasn't until the disciples panicked that he stopped the waves just to show that he could. Why are you so afraid? We all, each of us who has called on the name of the Lord, are now in the Father's arms as well. And to see that his son created cannot swallow and hold us in his gloom either. So don't miss the point of all this. Paul went through the storm, but he got through it. And that's all we're really promised. That the Lord will get us through the storm to where he's taken us. And he'll be there with us. He never promises there won't be consequences for bad decisions. Sailing off into the Mediterranean, loaded down with people and valuable cargo at the start of hurricane season, probably wasn't the best choice. When most other vehicles, ships were taking shelter at this point, that's why they ended up on a Greek ship. And now there's consequences for this decision. This wasn't Paul's bad choice. He tried to warn him. But he's at the mercy of those who made this choice. And the enemy's going to use every opportunity he can to stop Paul. The enemy is the world's chief opportunist. How many times have we seen that throughout this story in the last several chapters of Acts? Time Paul turned around, there's some other plot, some other natural disaster or evil scheme or legal mumbo-jumbo trying to destroy this guy. It's just one long-foiled attempt after another to stop Paul from spreading the gospel to Jews or Gentiles. The attempts aren't fun to endure. Probably, Paul's probably not really enjoying this. He always ends up boozed, bruised and battered, fear for his life, but he endures. And every time he gets through, he's one step closer to accomplishing his purpose to get where he's going, and the kingdom of heaven is always a little bigger as a result. The storms are inevitable. We're not in heaven yet. But we'll get where we're going in this life and the next. That's not all lightning and rain along the way either. The Lord provides for those he loves. We see that in his story. Actually, some amazing provision. He gives Paul an advocate in the unlikely form of a Roman centurion who, and Paul just by chance, happens to stop in the city along the way where he knows people. Hey, you want to go see those guys? Let me give you some stuff. Maybe gave him a new warm cloak, some bread, cheese, and wine to take along. Here you better pack some lunches. It's a long trip. Probably got some writing materials so we could write his letters to the churches. Maybe a little coinage for whatever he might need along the way. Might want to grab a coffee or something. I don't know. That's what I would do. The next day we landed at Sidon and Julius and Caius Paul allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. And he also certainly enjoyed a measure of respect, which would be highly unusual for one who's going to Roman chains, being transported as a prisoner, 
No, they didn't take his sailing advice. They didn't respect him that much right away, but why would they listen to this Jewish scholar when we got seasoned sailors here who know what they're talking about, but when the stuff hits the fan, all of a sudden they're listening to this guy, and he's got words of hope and encouragement for him. So they pay close attention. They were all fasting. They'd fast for four days. Paul says, you guys need to eat. You need to get your strength. The Lord says we're going to get through this, but you guys need to do your part. And so they listened, and they ate, and they lightened the load by dumping the grain. Suddenly that grain is not so valuable when it's their lives at stake. And then the soldiers listened to them when the sailors tried to get off away, sneak away in the lifeboats. Hey, you might want to check out what these sailors are doing. They're trying to get down there in the lifeboat. They do that. You guys don't know how to sail the ship, right? So they start listening to Paul. Paul's insight and divine protection and guidance would ultimately save the lives of everyone on board. The Lord's providing him with great wisdom, favor, and provision here. Pretty miraculous, given the circumstances. So let's read the conclusion of the story, verse 40. They're shipwreck on Gilligan's Island here. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar. It ran aground. That's what they said. <laughs> the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill all the prisoners. You lose a prisoner as a Roman soldier, your life is forfeit. Take care of that right here. To, to prevent any from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion, Julius, wanted to spare Paul's life and keeps him from carrying out their plan. So he orders those who can swim to jump overboard first and get the land. The rest are to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reaches land safely, which is pretty amazing. Floating into shore on a, in the middle of a storm on pieces of the ship you're on that are falling off. 276, not a person lost. And I'll bet there's never been a group of people that were more happy to stand on solid ground. And probably were a little more willing at this point to listen to Paul when he starts telling stories about this Lord who had uh, been visiting with him along the way there and encouraging and assuring him, this Nazarene named Jesus, who has a plan for all of them. For last night there stood by me an angel of God of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Unlike you pagans, maybe you should do this too. And he says, do not be afraid. Paul, he said to me, you must stand before the emperor indeed. God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. God had a plan for Paul. He has a plan for all of us. And God's plans can't be thwarted.